0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, and also in addition to the Becker's Behavioral Health Podcast. i thrilled today to join someone who's got one of the most interesting jobs in healthcare. We're talking with Emily Snow, and Emily is the Director of Behavioral Health Initiatives at, at Blue Cross Kansas City, Kansas City Blue Cross. She'll tell me the exact name of it to make sure I don't embarrass myself. Emily, can you take a moment and, and, and introduce yourself and tell us how you ended up in this role of Director of Behavioral Health Initiatives?
1: Sure. Thank you very much. So I worked for about 18 years in as a med, in Medicaid provided services, and I was a service provider for mostly children in foster care who uh, who had Medicaid and did reimbursement through Medicaid. And then I decided to kind of take a slight slight career turn and I ran an inpatient psychiatric hospital for children. It's actually the largest in the Midwest region, and it's the third largest actual hospital for children in, um, in, in Kansas. And uh, we, uh, I ran that for approximately five years, and about two years ago, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield decided to prioritize behavioral health, and they reached out to me, and. Uh, the rest is pretty much history. I've been with Blue Cross Blue Shield for almost two years now, and we have been working through a lot of behavioral health uh, initiatives as we see the increase in the need for behavioral health for our members and for, for frankly, everybody across the United States.
0: Oh, uh, 100%. And Emily, talk to us for a moment about what are some of the initiatives? What are some of the things, I mean, Blue Cross Blue Shield, it one of the largest payers in the area, if not the largest, Mm -hmm. outside of Medicare and Medicaid. What are some of the initiatives? What are some of the things that a great payer is trying to do to have a positive impact?
1: Well, I would would tell you that the number one uh, priority we have is to increase access to care. There are approximately... 200 psychiatrists in the Kansas City metro area, and that just isn't enough to serve the 3 million residents of the Kansas City metropolitan area. So we want to look at different ways, whether it be through digital or telehealth, ways to increase access to care. Another piece is uh, to reduce stigma around behavioral health. Uh, we, We feel like since the pandemic, some of the stigma has been reduced because a lot of people are realizing that they're just not okay right now. Um, and the other piece that's very important to us and it's part of our, our, a, a bigger strategy is to make sure that we have total healthcare integration, meaning that uh, we look at uh, whole health and behavioral health is part of health and that should be part of what we treat on a regular basis. And so we are concentrating a lot on integration um, another piece, I think, is to make sure that we educate and engage 18 to 34-year-olds. They are coming out of the pandemic uh, reporting the, the most uh, behavioral health issues and the most need for help right now. They're, they're verbalizing it, and we, and we know it's true. And so we need to help educate and engage them around behavioral health.
0: Um, take, there, take a moment. Now. Let me let me stop you, Emily. Let me stop you for a second because there, there's so many mm-hmm. pieces of what you said so far that are so interesting. Would you again mention that about the 18 to 34 year olds and and where they're at on behavioral health needs? You you would, you had started to say something.
1: Oh sure sure. So the number two cause of death for 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 individuals ages 10 to 34 is suicide, and so and it's only second to accidental injury and you know we tell kids or adults to wear bicycle helmets or to wear their seat belts but what do we do about behavioral health uh it's kind of a a a quiet issue uh, and we we don't always check in with our with our uh with our family members or our friends or our colleagues and right now these these the ages of eighteen to thirty four year old individuals are actually reaching out to to us and saying to us, "We do need help." and that is a demographic we need to engage. um They'll be running the world in a generation
0: but but that's fascinating. I was not aware of that, and I know that that's such a formative age. And when I hear of children of friends or colleagues and so forth committing suicide, it's almost always in an age range. And, and why is that? Is it that by the time that somebody's past 34, they're more fully formed, they've accepted life, or there's other causes of death? I mean, that just is a frightening statistic, that this concept of between 10 and 34, that it's the most common cause of death after accidental injury. That's a, it's a frightening stat, and it's one that resonates, because as you as you see it in the community and so forth, we all worry about uh, younger people, our children, and so forth and so on, fascinating statistic. It talks about, you'd also mentioned, and I know you, were, you weren't even getting started at all the initiatives that you have going, you would also mention shortages of psychiatrists. And, and many of us know, if you wanna to talk to a psychiatrist beyond just getting your prescription filled, Good luck with that. Just because there's such a <laughs> shortage of them. I mean, so and I know they've been they've been, you know, it and obviously psychologists, others have filled that gap and done so so social workers. Some people have filled that gap. But the point on the shortage of psychiatrists is, is literally incredible how much of a shortage we have in our country. How do you how do how do we start to deal with that and look at that? What are some of the thoughts there? Well,
1: you know, uh, psychiatrists are some of the the lowest paid uh, physicians in the field of you know of medicine. Uh, so I think that we need to engage uh, engage medical students early and and uh, and educate them about the field of psychiatry. And I think we need to either look at um, programs where there are shortages of psychiatrists, which pretty much covers the United States, where we can help them pay back their student loans. And we need to probably look at at the payment structure for psychiatrists as well. Uh, But one thing I know that's very important to them is getting their student loans paid off. Um, And I, you know, uh, Two thirds of the country is considered a mental health professional shortage area, and so there are there there are programs that help people with with student loan relief. But I think we could uh, we definitely need to uh, rev that up, and I think that uh, different types of systems, like hospital systems or insurance companies, different companies need to consider uh, fellowships or endowments to. For
0: psychiatrists coming out of school. And, and not nearly enough residency spots. Fascinating, mm-hmm. fascinating shortages. You heard every place. there you don't even have staff to, to staff a psychiatric hospital? I mean, talk about ways in which they try and leverage psychiatrists' time. I was actually, it was a huge learning experience for me for me years ago when a family member had to see a psychiatrist, and it was very clear. We don't talk at all. We just prescribe if you want to talk, mm-hmm. talk to a social worker, a psychologist, and so forth. but it was it was just enlightening in an in anecdotal way. And then I've obviously seen it throughout the countries. I talked to people about how short staffed we are in so many areas, I like think two-thirds of the areas, probably almost more than that. But yes, mm-hmm. uh, what other initiatives? what else are are you Emily following and excited about and interested in?
1: well, we're we're really the the integration piece it will help with the psychiatric shortage. We're looking at programs like coordinated care management where we have a behavioral health professional in a primary care office and we also have a consulting psychiatrist that a primary care physician can utilize for advice on prescribing and treatment so that program could really reduce the need for psychiatrists to see patients who are at um, have subclinical symptoms or are or have what would be considered a diagnosis, but not a complex diagnosis like a schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. We're talking about people who have anxiety and stress. Approximately seven out of every 10 visits to a primary care physician involves discussion about behavioral health issues. And if we could empower those primary care physicians to be able to treat the, the people with subclinical symptoms and some less complex behavioral health disorders, we would be able to free up some psychiatric time and some psychiatrists to help the people who have higher acuity and higher needs and more complex medication needs.
0: And this is also a fascinating issue because the primary care community has gone back and forth on how deeply they themselves want to delve into this, whether it's Mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical part of it or the counseling part of it, for liability risk purposes, for recognition that this is more complex than they thought it was, and so forth. I mean, it's really a fascinating mix, and the more you can get true behavioral health resources with primary care physicians that, for reality, weren't trained for this and weren't trained to prescribe drugs for it, the better off you are, because they they really, I mean, it really is. I mean, primary care physicians, obstetric gynecologists have gotten more and more careful about what they prescribe, and for Mm -hmm. good reason, because they're, they're really not trained in it. To that extent but a fascinating discussion and you've had more and more of this trend towards putting behavioral health professionals in primary care offices They just need a big enough office that they could afford that that they have the behavioral health professional in there too
1: absolutely we've seen that pediatricians are pretty uh open and enthusiastic about doing coordinated care management they feel uh pretty comfortable with working with that uh that method of Consultation and support from a psychiatrist. So uh, that is something that I find interesting and exciting because children's mental health is really probably at the top of uh, children and general the Gen Z mental health. Those are probably you know top of mind right now. Um, as in those groups have really lost a, you know two years of their education and two years of their their life. Uh, they've been so different. And so they've experienced trauma from that. And so it's exciting that pediatricians are really open to that, that concept.
0: And, and, and so important, I mean, you, you can't go through a day without talking to someone whose child is not suffering from some, some kind of mental health issue. And, and, and as a parent, one spends all their time so acutely aware of those issues. I mean, it's, uh, and, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, we all have behavioral health and mental health issues, and they're not quite the stigma that was attached to it at some point, and they're all over a continuum as to how significant they are for all of us. But, you know, it's been such a huge part of my priority of life, trying to maintain mental and physical health because it's a uh, table stakes for everything else, quite frankly. Uh, Emily, talk to us about. We've talked about shortages. We've talked about coordinated care models. We're talking about this acute challenge for 18 to 34 year olds 10 to 34 year olds what other trends are you following as you i mean you've been now in the behavioral health world for a long time what other trends are you watching closely
1: so we we can't ignore the opioid epidemic more people died last year from overdoses uh than in any other year recorded in the united states so that's something we have to look at but and and explore and we need to offer more medication-assisted treatment and have a broader range of uh, professionals helping with medication-assisted treatment. Uh, SAMHSA recently uh, allowed uh, all physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and certified nurse anesthetists, they are all able to get trained to become a MAT waiver provider, a medication-assisted treatment provider. And so there are a lot of options opening up, but we have got to address the opioid epidemic. It is it is uh, very chronic and when they talk about, when the news talks about a thousand or a million people um, dying from COVID, they're not necessarily saying that they all died from the COVID virus. A lot of them died from overdoses. Um, and other complications, but a lot of those can be attributed to opioid overdoses during the
0: pandemic as well. Um, and talk for a moment there. And I, I, I hate to keep on intercepting and getting trying to get more from you on the subject, but you're just fascinating, really fascinating to visit with. So 100,000 people died last year from opioid, opioid no. overdoses and overdose. Oh, yeah. like 100,000 from opioids. And and talk about, and this is something that's very distressing because this is something that the country was making great progress on for several years and now flipped way back up, back from 66,000 to 100,000 deaths. And if there's 100,000 deaths, we know that that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands with addiction problems and challenges. I mean, the deaths are just a small part of that. Is there a pathway for the country to get better on this again?
1: Yes, there is. There's a pathway. Uh, I we I implore physicians to be very conscious of prescribing opioids. I know that sometimes that it is it's difficult. I've seen them reduce the prescription of opioids, but I really think that uh, taking the stigma again stigma away from medication assisted treatment uh, will help solve this epidemic because. Um, you think of, if you think of medication-assisted treatment, like you think of treatment for diabetes, people have to take insulin to function when they have diabetes, and if someone has become addicted to opioids, and, and really not even through their own fault per se, uh, medication-assisted treatment can be just a standard, a standard level of care that, looks just like someone who might have another chronic condition that requires regular medication and so uh and and the relapse rates are so much lower through medication assisted treatment as opposed to um maybe like um narcotics anonymous or things like that and those are not bad things but um, medication assisted treatment works and it is a it's a valid it's a valid um practice and SAMHSA supports it. And so that's where I think we need to head with that.
0: But but that's a fascinating perspective because, quite frankly, for alcohol, Alcohol Anonymous has had really good results. For narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous has not had nearly as good a result. And blame, your point on blame is right on. Whether somebody became addicted because they were a recreational user somebody being addicted because they were had surgery or something else and started taking it for pain. The the reality is regardless of the cause, it's typically a genetic makeup that leads somebody to be, to not have an off switch, not be able to stop. And so Mm -hmm. the the blame concept is so wrong and sort of, you know, people make mistakes. They try things to make mistakes and they don't realize they're not going to have an off switch for it. And so this concept of blame, I mean the person, regardless of how they ended up getting there, it is so off. And the more that people are willing to, I mean, I, I, I read enough, seen enough that your point on medicated is med, medication assisted treatment. Um, it, it seems like the best pathway, or one of the only pathways. And your point on shame is so right because you used to see people wind up in those methadone clinics, and those mm-hmm. of us that are from a different world would be like oh, my God, what do those people do wrong? What's wrong with them? My God, look at them. And, and the more you grow, the more you learn, the more you realize they're just us who took a, either from a, a surgery or, you know, screwed up, made a mistake, but then they didn't realize they couldn't control it. And so, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I, it's just so true in this. Um, what are the things you're following the opioids? I mean, you're fascinating, Emily, truly fascinating what you do and thank God for people like yourself you know, weeding these outcomes. Well, what other trends are you watching?
1: We are um, watching social determinants of health. Uh, so that would be people's access to housing, food, a safe neighborhood, uh, safety from domestic violence, um, different pieces like that. A lot of community health because behavioral health is really connected. Behavioral health outcomes are really connected to social determinants of health. People who who lack food, have a really hard time uh, handling a behavioral, recognizing or handling a behavioral health disorder when they're just trying to feed their family. Or if they live in a city where services are limited and, it's a, and they're in a high crime area or in an area that just isn't safe or doesn't have resources, then they can't get help for their behavioral health. and so. We really are looking at health equity and social determinants of health and ways that we can engage um, those, engage with those as part of behavioral health improvement. Um, Because again, if you can't meet your basic needs then how can you move on to uh, deeper needs and, and, and different needs that really affect your whole life quality, but people haven't always recognized that because behavioral health is such a has been such a, a, a stigmatized subject in the past
0: emily snow I, I want to thank you for joining us today uh director of behavioral health initiatives at blue cross blue shield kansas city at blue cross blue shield kansas make sure i have got that right
1: kansas, blue cross blue shield kansas, kansas
0: city kansas city uh, thank you so much for joining us just absolutely fascinating discussion um I learned a lot and I I hope you'll join us again on the podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you, Emily.
1: I would love to. It's a very important topic. Thank you.
0: Thank you.